And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jake S. Friedman to the program today. Jake is a former animator, current educator, and a researcher and writer about the history of animation. His first book was The Art of Blue Sky Studios, and today, in the first part of a two-part interview, we'll be talking about his new book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, which is published by Chicago Review Press. All right, Jake, over the years, I've heard that Walt and Roy Disney could be hard to work for and pretty mercenary in their ways. So it's kind of a surprise to find out their father was a socialist. I think whether they were hard to work for or whether they were mercenary, that was up for debate, depending on the point of view of whoever worked for them. Some people thought that Walt was great and some felt that Walt was not. That's why the strike was so contentious. It was really split close to down the middle. But Walt's stubborn feeling about standing up against the impending surge of unionism that was overtaking Hollywood. And I argue this in my book, not really argue, but I present his history as a young person growing up in Chicago. It appears that he was just, first off, kind of scared of like radical socialism because he saw how it kind of broke his dad. And he saw how radical socialism was the chief agitator in Chicago and maybe almost blew Walt up. A bomb went off near Walt. Walt almost died. They suspected these radical socialists. But really, you know, we all know the Oswald story about how he and his studio created this character and then suddenly lost the rights to the character before Mickey Mouse. And he just was extremely protective of his work after that and just needed to have control. He had been kind of traumatized at that point, and he feared anything that would challenge that control. So how did Walt get into the animation game in the first place? How did Walt get into the animation game? Very interesting. If you think of like what has been going on with Silicon Valley these last couple decades, that was what was going on in Hollywood in the teens and 20s and 30s. So Walt was like a young, let's say, Steve Jobs. And he wanted to get into this really cool new medium. Broadly, he was a creative kid. He copied the comic strips from his dad's socialist newspaper. He loved putting on plays with his best friend. He had to work hard as a paper boy, early mornings, late evenings. So he he really got like hard work under his belt, dot, dot, dot. Moving to Chicago, he got really into this budding new thing called film. And he was a big fan of Charlie Chaplin and he got really into animation too. Animation at the time was little more than like moving paper images around, but he thought that there was something really special there. And he started doing ads for this small studio that grew to be maybe like 30 people. And he had this idea to create his own fairy tales, like to animate his own fairy tales. And he and a bunch of young upstarts, they were like around 19 or 20, created this small studio called Laughograms. And that folded. Before it folded, he created like a perspective pitch film called Alice's Wonderland about a live action little girl who goes into a cartoon land. And that got the interest of a distributor. And she gave him a contract and he said, yes, I'm going to make a studio and produce these films. And now he's in Hollywood and he has this very small studio. He brings in his friends that he built laughograms with and 
in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And so his Kansas City friends come on over. That kind of shifts to making cartoons for Universal Studios about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And now you have like a cartoon star whose design is very similar to other cartoon stars at the time, like Felix the Cat. You have this like animal with black body and a very simple face. And that's how he got into animation. And his cartoons actually became moderately popular, but he wanted more, more money for the wider distribution that these cartoons were getting. And the new guy in charge of the distribution said, no, I want to control it now and you can be my employee. And Walt was kind of heartbroken by that. And so then he was like, no, I'm going to make Mickey Mouse on my own. <laughs> and again, just like he did with Alice's Wonderland, he had this reel and was pitching it around just on prospectus, so to say, like he would either sell it or he would go broke. That's kind of how he did everything. And he ended up making huge waves with Mickey Mouse and the rest is history. It seemed like there was the boom-bust cycle kind of mirrored what happened in the general economy with America from the 1880s through the Great Depression. Yeah. You know, during the Great Depression, in the big cities, there was a lot of activism. There was a surge of people who were fighting for representation, whether they were people who were not being paid what they considered a living wage, like garment workers in New York or, people, or, or factory workers in the Midwest or farmers. And I put all of that in the book, the context of the strike that the Disney revolt is about, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Unionism is kind of taking the world by storm when people realize I can't survive on what income I'm getting now. I need help. And the union is the way to create that collective bargaining voice that can get my demands met so I can have a living wage. Because so much of the country had changed, people were no longer on the farm where they could at least raise some crops to support themselves with and have a big family structure that helps them out. A lot of people moved to the city and had no support net from their family and no way to grow their own food. Yes and no. There were still a lot of big farms that existed. And there's a farmer strike that spread across the Midwest that I give some shout out to during the 1930s. There was a farm collective also, which was not technically a union, but an attempt to kind of be a union that Walt's dad was a part of that ended up kind of being a pyramid scheme. So, I mean, that's another thing that made Walt really resistant to anything union-y. Another main character in the story is Art Babbitt. And just like Walt's father, he was not professionally successful. Art Babbitt grew up similar to Walt, since we're making the comparison. He grew up in the Midwest, like Walt, went to a big city, like Walt, except Babbitt went to New York when he was 16, whereas Walt was in Chicago and then Kansas City. And another similar strain that ran through them both was that they were both incredibly hardworking and long-term goal-driven. And so while Walt would work tirelessly and had this intense work ethic, Art Babbitt, who was just a few years younger than Walt, was also a creative kid and in New York just worked his butt off and took art classes and really wanted to become an illustrator or a professional designer. He really helped his family kind of get out of this impoverished state that they were in once they were in New York. 
Art Babbitt's family, his parents were immigrants as well. And his Art Babbitt's father had been in an accident. He was a peddler, like selling things door to door. But he had a spinal injury from a horse and buggy accident. And so Art became the breadwinner for the family when he was just a teenager. When he heard that the studio in, in New York named Terry Tunes, run by a big animator, a big local animator named Paul Terry, was making cartoons with sound, Art Babbitt said, I have to be part of this. And he worked at Terry Tunes from uh, 1929 through 1932. And he had been wanting to go to Disney because, I mean, Disney cartoons, in his view, were the only cartoons that were doing the things that he conceived animation capable of doing. At the time, most animated cartoons were just filler. They were novelty things. They were just things that the audience would see. Oh, look at that silly little thing move around. But even back then, Art Babbitt could see that Walt was doing something special. And so he had a reel. He had a portfolio. He took a train, bought a one-way ticket, and got a job. And so what was this state-of-the-art ideas that Walt and his animators there already were working on that gave such a, a siren's call to Art? When Art was in Terry Tunes, he saw that there was no story department. There was just a gag file. In other words, the guy at the top, Paul Terry, had a box of index cards and there was no narrative. There was no character growth. It was just gag after gag. And some of them didn't make sense, especially when you strung them together. So that was one thing that, that Terry Tunes was kind of behind on. So the other thing, besides not having a writing department, Terry Tunes had no way to really test animation. Animators would draw their thing. They could flip the paper, but they couldn't really test it under a camera. They didn't ever see their final animation or any rough animation even until after the film was developed. And then it was too late to change anything. Whereas Walt had these two really monumental ideas. One to have a story department and like basically people talking about the story and how to make a story compelling. And two, he used something called a moviola, a pencil test machine. And this was a way to look at the rough animation, and then make changes, go back, fix, add, change, and then look at the rough animation again and keep doing that until you got it right. This was expensive, both in time and in resources, right? Using a lot of film isn't cheap, but Walt wanted something more. He wanted something beyond what the other studios were doing. And for that reason, that studio, the Disney studio, was progressing so much faster and farther at the beginning than other studios of that time. Art had his own ideas on how to improve his work. His use of filmed reference models of live-action people to work from was one of the things that he really relied on. Yeah, bingo. So Art was really in sync with Walt. That's really kind of like a really close-knit, kind of like two people vibrating on the same frequency. To go the extra mile to make the work better. So you're absolutely right, Stephen. Art wanted to make the work better. He had, by like 1935, he had a good amount of money. He'd been earning a good wage because he had excelled so fast over such a short amount of time that he had a home movie camera and he started shooting his friends with his movie camera. And he would watch the film and say, I like how that person moves. I'm going to implement that movement into my animation. I'm not a choreographer. This person has a great 
sense of movement, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use the skill that they have and use it to inspire my character. And with that, he was able to kind of unlock the key or unlock the door, I, I should say, with the key of live action reference. And that became the way that they animated the character of Snow White. They didn't know how beforehand. Art Babbitt figured that out. Art Babbitt brought in art classes, like a teacher and life models into the animation studio. That began a, like a multi-year art school within the Disney studio that caused Disney talent to go through the roof throughout the 1930s. Again, Art Babbitt. Art Babbitt wanted to get into the minds of the characters. Walt Disney kept talking about personality, but no one knew what that really meant. No one knew how to unlock personality for a cartoon character. Art Babbitt was an intellectual. He had been reading up on this new thing called method acting that was being kicked around Hollywood in the mid-30s, and he wrote a method acting treatise on Goofy, and it's called Character Analysis of the Goof. And in that, he describes Goofy's psyche, Goofy's subconscious, how Goofy reacts to things that he wouldn't ever see on screen, just who he is as a personality. What is he like off the screen? And that was the breakthrough in personality that the studio had been waiting for all this time. So in these ways, Art Babbitt was not only in sync with Walt, more than any other animator there. But he was, and I'll stand by this, the most valuable animator that Walt had. They had established a bonus system for when these shorts performed extremely well in the theaters that helped out with some of the, the grumblings about the pay there at Disney. There was a very generous bonus system sort of to get incentive, right? This incentive program. And that was a very clear system from like the mid-30s into mid-1937. And this bonus system, if you did really great animation, you would get a piece of the profits of the selling of the, this profit-sharing program really was Walt's way to get his animators invested into his studio. It created this all-for-one, one-for-all mentality. With that, Walt kind of included himself amongst them Every dollar I make, you're getting a piece of directly. Everyone felt like they were part of this thing. And they felt that if the studio would succeed with Snow White, everyone would benefit. And if Snow White would fail, everyone would go down together, go down with the ship. We're all just a band on this ship together. And if it wins, great. And if it doesn't, well, no one's making out when someone else is. And when you establish a benefit and a perk like that, it's really obvious when it goes away. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. So I feel like, have you read the book, Stephen? Yes. I'm curious, what did you think of the bonus plan? Well, it's a great idea, but when Snow White took so much money and so much effort to get out the door, I don't know how much accounting trickeration is going on, but I don't know whenever they went into the black on that. Because you mentioned Silicon Valley early, and you had this huge production crunch to get Snow White out the door. And they're operating under the assumption of a bonus system. And then when it doesn't come through, that's, you know, a big slap in the face. Unpaid overtime. Unpaid overtime. You can see it on the newsreels. The announcer is saying that they're working night and day to get this project out. Well, yeah, they were working night and day. They were promised to be compensated for their time. And they were hoping that this would be a big smash hit. And it was. But once it was, they didn't reap the benefits of this. 
it was almost like Walt and Roy saw that this was actually like a big moneymaker. This wasn't just art, artwork. This wasn't just a new art form. This was a moneymaker. And once that happened, they started to reevaluate where the money was going to go. So not so much to the artists, but back into the studio. And so with the Snow White money, as you know, Walt and Roy, actually more Walt than Roy, but Walt directed his money towards his new big idea of a studio in Burbank, away from this hodgepodge little studio in Los Angeles. And so they started building the studio in Burbank and half the people were excited about it and half the people were not. The people who were excited were like, this is great. We have these great new facilities. We have these like custom designed, fancy art deco furniture. We have these great amenities like a soda shop and an automotive shop on site where people can get their cars looked at. And we have a sports club on the top couple floors of the animation building. Much like in Silicon Valley, where all the amenities they had for their workers. Yeah, yeah. But the other half who weren't into that were like, I can't build a family or pay a mortgage with access to a soda shop or with new fancy furniture. I mean, at this point, you have people who are like in their late 20s, turning 30 at the time, and they wanted to start with the next stage of their lives. They wanted more than just these amenities. And about that athletic club, it was only available to people earning, like to the highest paid earners, the equivalent of people earning $100,000 a year by today's standards. And so it excluded a lot of the staff. Maybe it was meant to be a motivational tool. Like maybe if you work hard enough and you earn enough, then you'll have access to this. But this really rankled Art Babbitt a lot. He said, as soon as it's available to everyone, I'd be happy to join this club. But it, until then, I'm going to abstain from going. Could you talk a little bit about the hierarchy in the animation department from the assistants going to the in-betweeners and such? Sure. So when you make an animated film in the golden age, it starts off with, well, you have the story department. Once you have like your story, it gets passed to the layout people who basically set the stage and they draw pictures that give an idea of, of what the background might look like and where the characters will be on each shot or each sequence. And then it gets passed to the animator and the animator runs a team like a little unit of people. And the animator puts in like the main poses and decides basically how a character moves, how a character gestures, the timing, the pacing of the character. And so there's a lot about acting that goes into animation. You can't just have a character move from left to right. How does a character handle any one of the emotions the character's feeling? You know, if a character is surprised, does it slap its hand on its forehead? Does it wave its arms wildly? Does its jaw drop to the floor? Does it do a double take? You want to stay true to the character. So that's what the animator does. Then once the animator has all the main poses and knows the timing, the animator passes that to, at the time, most of them were male. So I'll say his assistant. And his assistant cleans up those drawings and makes them make the lines nice and neat. And then those drawings get passed to the in-betweener who makes all the in-between drawings which is a little more complicated than just drawing something that's smack in the middle. But you want to make sure that movements are smooth and you have things called eases in and eases out, which means there are a lot of drawings at the beginning of a movement and a lot of drawings at the end of a movement sometimes. So it kind of have a 
has a smooth flow to it. So now, after the in-betweener, you have a complete stack of drawings with every drawing you need. Then it gets passed to the ink and paint department. And of course, you know, you test it with a test camera, and then it comes back and you run the test reel on the Moviola to see if it looks good. And then if it looks good, send it to ink and paint. So you have inkers and you have painters. By like 1937 and around that time, they were pretty much at Disney, exclusively female. And the inkers take those paper drawings and there are holes at the bottom of the drawings. They're called peg holes because a peg with little tiny protrusions would be used to place those drawings over. I'm doing my best to create a picture of what this looks like on a radio podcast, but bear with me. So you have these animation drawings with peg holes and the anchors would place the drawings on the peg holes, put a clear sheet of acetate called a cell. Maybe you've heard the term animation cell. So that's like a clear sheet and it has peg holes too. Place it on top. Now, if anything moves, it doesn't shift because the holes keep everything in place. And the inkers use a paintbrush, like well, a, like a thick brush and black ink to trace the lines from the drawing onto the cell. So now you have black drawing lines. Sometimes the ink actually is not black. Sometimes you want a contour or an outline to be a different color than black, and the inkers would have to handle that too. And then that would be passed to the painters. And the painters would then take that cell and on the reverse side of the cell, take their brushes and basically color in kind of like color by number or like, or like a coloring book, fill in each of those spaces with a different color paint in their paintbrush. So there's a lot of great information. If your listeners are interested on how ink and paint works, there's a great book called Ink and Paint by Mindy Johnson. And it talks about how like the Disney inkers and painters had become basically chemists to like create new colors that didn't exist in their art store and how they used like different airbrushes and all these really cool ink effects and paint effects. Like it was really sophisticated. Also, they didn't have erasers. And those inkers and painters were paid the lowest of the bunch. They were paid the equivalent of like an $18,000 a year salary for painters and a $20,000 a year salary for inkers. And the in-betweeners were being paid like twenty-two dollars to $24,000 a year, again, adjusted for inflation. So although Disney was doing like the most significant work in Hollywood, they were not paying the artists very much. Someone doing Tom and Jerry over at MGM could be earning a whole lot more. Well, you pay less per person and you can employ more people to make a smoother animation sequence. That's true. If you're selling your film to more theaters, and especially if you have this like big international distribution contract and you're selling to all the countries of Europe, which they were, like Disney cartoons were playing in Europe, all over Europe. And Walt confirmed this on a trip to Europe that he took in 1935. Then you can sell internationally and then you have an even broader distribution deal than just, you know, coast to coast. So with that extra income, you can afford to hire more people. You can afford to make a bigger picture and make a fancier and eventually like industry-changing film like Snow White. Art Babbitt had been earning good bonuses for his work, especially on the Goofy Shorts. And 
when the results came back from Snow White, essentially his bonus was getting to marry Snow White and no cash. He uh, <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't happy about that. Yeah, there, isn't that funny though that he ended up marrying the model for Snow White? And she was still with us until just a couple of years ago. Yeah, when she married him, her name was Marge Belcher. But when I knew her, she was Marge Champion. She was a famous television dancer, and she was in some feature films as well, Marge Champion. And she was just so, so sweet, so nice. She married Art. You know, they were both very young at the time, and she lived a very long life. And she was here. I mean, I had the luxury of just riding my bike down to her apartment here in New York City. And visiting her numerous times and she was just so helpful. So I was very sad that she passed away. Although I think it was at the age of the tender age of 99, 98, something like that. I think that. she was 101 when she passed. I think I read. Oh, look at me. I'm even, I don't know how young <laughs> she was, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. A lot of those folks were, I mean, when I met them, Marge was the youngest person of the golden age that I had the luxury of meeting, but they were all easily centenarians. And I didn't want my book to be based too heavily on the recollections of, of people 80 years after the fact, well, or 70 or 60 years, or even, even like 30 years after the fact, because there are interviews with folks in the 1970s, and they're remembering something that happened, you know, in 1940 or 1941. Even Art Babbitt was interviewed about this many times, and he talks about it. But because this book is such a, it covers such a tumultuous event, I stayed away from people's recollections about the strike as much as I possibly could and just relied on records of that time. I didn't want people's opinions and feelings to cloud any any memories or anything that they called facts. I mean, you talk to any two people today about the same event from, I don't know, two years ago, and people will remember something completely different. So I love meeting Marge, and I love talking to her and getting a, like a taste of what it was like. But it was really things like diary entries and memos and and newspaper articles and legal documents that shaped the scholarliness that the book is based on. Did you ever notice where an official document or record would contradict what someone had said 40 years later? Yeah. And people were like remembering things that I could find no evidence about. And I was like, that's a good story. But unless I can triangulate my research, I can't put it in. If I do have someone's anecdote in there, I might say so-and-so remembered that blah, 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 blah. But then when I have like a diary entry, like a lot of people remember that there was that there was an altercation in the parking lot between Art Babbitt and Walt Disney, but different people remembered it different ways. And I just didn't know what that altercation looked like. And then I got the exact words that were yelled out from a news article that was written around that time for the New York Times. And I got the actual events from a diary entry by animator Ward Kimball on that very day. It's funny. It seems like a lot of the artists at the time knew that they were going through something significant, like industry changing. And so Ward Kimball, one of Walt's top animators, but he came like a couple years after Art Babbitt. He was like a slightly newer cohort and he became one of the nine old men. He kept diary entries of 
every day from the entire labor dispute era, like not just the strike, but for like a year before and a year after. You know, I had to pull a few strings to get access to these diary entries to see what like day by day it was like for someone who was on the inside who did not go out on strike. And there were some letters by people who were on the inside and letters by people who were on the outside and just some really cool nuanced memories that either got a chance to be confirmed or those that didn't just had to go in the scrap heap. Jake S. Friedman is the author of The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, which is published by Chicago Review Press. Join us next time as we continue our conversation as we discuss the strike and its ramifications for the Disney Company and for Art Babbitt. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.